I've never believed in people possessing superpowers until recently. And you will too, if you're ever fortunate enough to fish with Mark Croca. He's one of those guys people speak about when they say, man, I know this guy, he's just amazing. Yes, Mark's that guy. All of the most important, most significant flats fishing tournaments in the world are in Florida. The tarpon, permit, and bonefish fly tournaments are there, and all the all-tackle events too. No guide has won more of all of these than Mark. His house is a museum of trophies. His closets too. His clothes must be in the garage. There's no room in the house. Fishing with Mark is more than a treat. It's like living a chapter out of a science fiction book. Dark and cloudy, glare like ice. He sees the fish, and that's before he puts his polarized glasses on. His vision is that scary good. Let me tell you something. Mark Croca is a remarkable human being. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. This episode is going to take your breath away. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. All right, you ready to roll? Ready. All right. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you for allowing us to come into your wonderful home with you and your wonderful bride. We've been, uh, we've been, I wouldn't say good friends for a long time, but yes, good friends for a long time because I I liked you when I first met you back in Fort Lauderdale, and you know, over the years fishing with and against you in some of the tournaments, um, we've gotten to know each other know each other quite well um the nuances of your fishing has always been intriguing to me and last night you know when i called you we were talking about getting together this morning about about this interview you were saying well tomorrow i've got to go net some mullet and i was a little bit concerned about what time we could be here and what was your answer? I told you that I'll have the mullet uh, tucked away in the cooler safely by the time you even think of getting up. So. <laughs> <laughs> and how successful were you? We, we have enough for the week. <laughs> oh, we, good. We got them secured. You know, it's interesting because over the years, I, I think your reputation, besides being, you know, possibly one of the best tournament winners of all types in the, the island marauder area i asked you one time i think at breakfast what's your favorite fish to catch 
Sure. I remember. I, I still favor the mullet. I love to go cast net mullet. You, you start with nothing. There's no technology that can help you. You have to go out and create that situation to catch them. And then it's part of the process, which, which I love the process and the process being you're, you're building a house. You have to go get those mullet to catch something else. And, and you're getting, you're getting the best possible freshest bait that you can get. Frozen doesn't work. They're not as good when someone else gets them and you buy them or they're in someone else's well. You create, uh, you pave the road to your own success. That's the process that, that I really like. All of it, getting crabs, getting pinfish, getting pilchards and fly fishing, everything. It, it's a total, it's a total package. And that's what I really like about, about this fishing here. And, and I, I too remember you speaking about why you used a, a seven foot cast net and and how finicky and, and persnickety the mullet were and why you like that seven footer. Well, the seven footer was out of necessity because where, where we grew up in Broward County, uh, the maximum net that we could throw by law was seven foot. And, and back in the day, if you were caught by then the Marine Patrol, now it's the FWC, if they caught you with a net any bigger than seven foot, they would cut it right in front of you. They would cut it from the top and make it seven feet, cut right through the drawstrings and hand you back your net and say, here's your seven footer. <laughs> and, and it was done. Of course, the net's ruined. But we tried to, tried to abide by that. And, and the right. seven footer has an advantage too with distance. You can't throw a 12 footer 30 feet. Right. Maybe somebody can, I cannot. Right. Uh, but that, that distance was extremely helpful. Right. Well, you know, I think it would be... Um... I think it's prudent, prudent to ask you about the, the timing of our world right now. It's June 1st, 2020. You've had the keys shut down because of COVID and they're opening the door, the gate uh, today. What have you seen over this last period of time with the keys shut down? What has your fishing been like? What has your life been like down here? Well, life has certainly changed. Uh to go out to US-1 and go somewhere, you look both ways and you still can't believe. I have to say to Marcy, is that, am I seeing this? Are we open? There's nobody coming on your side. I double checked because there was nobody. There was nothing going on here. Um, but to the, to the point, the fishery, um, the tarpon certainly became more relaxed, but it's not like everything was jumping in the boat. You, we, we had phone calls saying, I can't wait to get there. The fishing must be off the hook. It's the time of year when it is, naturally. But a tarpon is an old fish. He's 30, 40, 50 years old, and he's not going to change because of six weeks. He's, he, you still throw a fly in if it's in the wrong place, and you do the wrong thing with it, they still turn their head away like they always did. Right. So that hasn't really changed. Um, there's less boat traffic, so I, I guess that's a good byproduct, if there is a good byproduct of what just happened, and that we're all healthy is the best byproduct, of course. Right. So, so in regards to fishing, not much has changed. You've I, seen. I, I don't think so. I think the which I'm sure we'll talk about more in depth later. The bone fishing continues to improve. Uh, the bone fishing has really come back, and ironically, we now body count wise only, uh, we now catch more bone fish than we did in the in the 80s and early 90s. Body count, we catch more every day than we ever have. They're two and three and four pounders, but and they're not 11 and 12 pounders anymore, but uh, they're, they're very willing. It's a new stock of fish coming up 
and and that continues to improve and it really uh, improved dramatically during this shutdown because everybody's tarpon fishing it's a time of year when everybody's tarpon fishing so you could see you could see the explosion the further explosion of the bone fishery over the last two months you know one of the interesting things that i noticed and we kind of got in a little bit early is that last two years ago was the worst year ever because of the weather we had terrible weather down here and this year or last year was the best because the weather was perfect and we get down here and we've we've had great weather throughout the last couple of weeks but i have not seen nearly as many fish as i did last year and since it was such a good weather year in february and march do you think but just by chance they got here they did their thing the worms hatched they spawn and they kind of moved on i i think I think the best thing that could happen to us annually, meteorologically speaking, is to have a severely cold winter. And and that puts everything right on the calendar track. We don't have winter anymore. We're, we're, you, you said it. We're here in February, and, it, and it's 89 degrees every day in February. That's, that's ridiculous. And I'm sure that it has a great deal to do with interrupting uh, that seasonal flow of the tarpon. There's no doubt that things changed. Uh, on on the calendar over the last 10 or 12 years in particular. Our winters are not winter anymore. And in fact, you remember that probably our best tarpon year in 30 years was the year of the cold snap. That spring and summer, I believe the Holly record was set that year and one of the other tarpon tournament records was set too. I can't remember if it was the Gold Cup or the Golden Fly. I think it was the Golden Fly. Uh, That fishing was was phenomenal and 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 the cold fronts and that severe cold snap probably were very instrumental in making that happen so there is a correlation between a really cold winter and a and a very fiery uh spring tarpon season i i I think that there is and and the season will also last longer uh that winter we were still catching uh large females in the downtown alamorada area both in the front and back we were catching 120, 130 pound fish with pretty good regularity uh, as late as mid-August that year. Whereas last year, the the 100 pound fish were out of here by, it wasn't even the end of June yet. And, and I don't think we caught many fish after that, with the exception of the fall mullet run in the channels here. Uh, we did not catch many fish over 100 pounds um, any time after that. It was, it was done. They were gone, completely gone. A quick question, you know, before we get into your life um, and going back when you were a younger kid, you know, and when you first got hooked on fishing. The discussion we had recently was whether or not this, you know, the worm hatches that take place and how these tarpon are so insatiable to eat these things. Do you think there's any sort of a biological thing that is a prerequisite with the worms? and the fertility and the spawning of these fish offshore there there has to be there i don't think anything in nature is is there unnecessarily it has to be fuel for them to further their migratory um their migratory track it has to be important to them i bet that stuff is high test if if there's if there's an octane rating for food i bet you mullet are you know 87 and the worms are probably 93 if not aviation fuel for them right yes i believe that yes i believe that's true do you think that bridge fishing should be banned 
because of this and the shark predation during that this time these hatches during these moon phases i i think we have to fish more carefully um in the in the main channels and and the main channels are the if you look at if you look at satellite imagery uh the main channels t table indian channel two channel five bahia honda uh seven mile even some of the bigger channels uh down in key west niles channel and key west harbor proper if you if you look at those places carefully on a satellite imagery it's the first place where you have a major interchange of water between the gulf and the atlantic and i think that's what puts us on the map here um when those fish are, are interchanging between the fish that migrate down from Holover and Government Cut, the, our, our classic southbound Oceanside fish that are coming down here, and the fish coming from the backcountry that come down the other coast and through the Cape, and then some, I guess, even come up from the south or Mexico or Costa Rica. Um, the, the areas where they concentrate around the channels, the way that people fish there has unfortunately evolved to chunking and chumming and and carcassing and and i'm i used to used to kind of feel live and let live and and let that stuff happen everybody has to have access to these fish but i i think i've taken a a, a right hand turn on that i don't think it's right to fish that way on those fish they're they're doing something that has to do with congregating and meeting the right mates here and, and spawning, the pre-spawn to go offshore and, and do that. So should it be banned? I, I don't know how you could ban it, but maybe it needs to be regulated. The, the carcassing has to stop. It, it's wrong, it ruins spots, and more importantly, it uh, limits the way other people can successfully fish an area. We, we, we joke about going out early frequently and, and 3 a.m., the 4 a.m. thing. But the truth is, there's many mornings that at 610, 6.15, 6.18, those tarpon are done. They're finished. You can't catch them on a crab. You can't catch them on a pinfish. Uh, you can certainly go sight fish them. That's, that's, a totally, that's a totally different type of fishing. But as far as their nocturnal behavior and their normal eating, they're finished. They're done. And that's why the evolution into this carcassing and the chumming and chunking and live chumming has 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 happened because it's the next thing to do after dawn. That's the way that bait fishermen uh, feel that sometimes they need to produce for their for their anglers. And I understand that, but I, I don't think it needs to be eliminated, but I think it needs to be regulated. I'm not sure who can do that. Maybe we have to create a, a more powerful guides association that does regulate that. But yes, it does need to be addressed and something does need to be done. Explain, yes. explain carcassing. How does that take place? Carcassing is a a, a horrible uh, a horrible approach to tarpon fishing. It's incredibly effective. You know that you've you've seen it, Budded Marys or uh, um, any main marina where people bring in their fish, their dolphin, their tuna, um, muttons, and groupers, and they bring their things in and they cut at the table, and those fish are there waiting. And now there's more places in town that are some of the restaurants have a a, a little. Uh, a little gathering of tarpon that are waiting for those carcasses. They clean their fish there. They're salmon, and you know we have the only tarpon in the in the world that have a high cholesterol count, unfortunately, <laughs> from, from all the other runoff, the, the French fries and the and everything else. But uh, the carcassing is is people actually will. There's a handful of of guides here who 
uh, and, and recreational anglers who will intercept um, the uh, cleaned fish from offshore guides, mainly dolphin. That's the bulk of the carcassing. And they'll fill 55-gallon drums up with it and take it out to a spot where there's tarpon and just anchor and start throwing crap in the water. And the tarpon come. And on the daily basis, those tarpon get used to that that time of being fed. Used to it is a, a good way to put it. Maybe another way to put it would be totally spoiled. Right. Because because we we have seen spots ruined you cannot go fish there anymore. And as you know, we've even had to, and we've both been on the rules committees of the tarpon fly tournaments from time to time over the past. We even had to put a rule in one of the tarpon tournaments. I can't remember if it's, I think it's the gold cup or the golden fly, one of the weight tournaments where you're not allowed to fish within 500 yards of someone who's doing that. That's how effective it is. But effective isn't the right word either. I long-termedly it's devastating it's not it's not the right thing to do for our tarpon fishery can you shame people from staying away uh, from a fishery and or fishing a certain way i i don't think you can shame them i uh, again maybe the key is is regulatory i don't think you could shame them because we've they're gonna go anyway they're gonna go and yeah and you know what they we all have to make a living and and that's respectable um if the way that you make a living adversely affects the way someone else is making a living, that's when it's wrong. That's when the line is crossed right there. So regulatory would be would be the way to go. I'm not sure how to do it, but something has to be addressed there. It's really bad. You know, it's interesting about you, Mark, as a friend. I've always known you to be a very strict disciplinarian. And speaking with your father the other day, he said he oh, never... No. <laughs> he said that you were that he never really had to hold you in line in that you basically knew the boundaries yourself and you you were self-contained for the most part. And he was so proud of you for avoiding the Fort Lauderdale debauchery back in the day and all the drugs. <laughs> Where did that uh, that self-inflicted discipline come from? Well, it's it's pretty interesting that I'll talk about dad in a moment, but I remember... Uh, and he doesn't know this, but I think in seventh or eighth grade on a Friday night, we had some silly little grade school function and I went to it and, and I snuck a beer. I had drank a beer and I woke up the next morning at three o'clock to ride my bike to Las Olas Boulevard to catch giant jacks crashing the seawall. And I, and I didn't feel good. I, I just felt like slow. And, and I remember saying to someone, I, I mentioned to one of my friends, he said, Oh, you had a miniature hangover. That's welcome, your first hangover. And I don't have anything against anyone who drinks or smokes or does whatever as long as they're not hurting anybody. I, that's all fine. But ever that moment, I knew that I couldn't do it. I, I wanted to be, I don't want to be 100% to go fishing. I want to be 1,000%. I want to take in every single thing that's happening and learn it in excruciating detail. That process thing again. I don't want to miss one little tiny thing that because as you know, especially with tarpon fly fishing, there isn't a tiny thing. A tiny thing is huge. Right. Everything's important. You're only as good as your weakest link. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I had that I had that feeling that morning and I and I was a little foggy and just, you know, half acidly out of it. And and that's it. I You I just, never drank again? Oh no, I have a goodness gracious, if we have right. a, a a birthday or something, I'll have a glass of wine and and but I don't do it before I go fishing. I can't. Right. I, I just don't want and I'm responsible for someone's safety too. For on sure. On the boat. Right. And that that's paramount. 
tell me about those early years of fishing in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, well, my, my father was a, um, um, as you know, his athletic background, he, uh, he, I'm going to, I'll answer your question kind of circuitously, but, uh, he was a, uh, a unbelievable athlete, uh, up North and, and in, in the, in the Minnesota and Illinois area, he, uh, he was the number two rated passer in all of college football in his senior year. And he was drafted by, uh, the Detroit Lions. I have the, I have that actual news clipping, uh, right here. It's, it's a little faded and you can barely see it, but, um, he was, he, he ended up not being able to play in the NFL because a few months before, uh, the season started, uh, they found a heart murmur in him. One of the, the team doctor found a heart murmur and that was it. His NFL career was over. So he moved to Fort Lauderdale and he became, uh, a letter carrier, for the postal service there. And he was a, a bicycle letter carrier on the Cordova road, Las Solas Boulevard circuit. So he, uh, got to see that fishery in the fifties, uh, when it was unbelievable, uh, from the bank, you know, we started fishing from the bank when I was, when I was young and he knew where all the jacks were in the, the bridges that had the massive snook and where the tarpon would hang out in the schools of mullet. And, and I, and, and, Fort Lauderdale back then was a bank fishery. Uh, you didn't really even need a boat. When we got a boat and started to fish the intercoastal later in the day, it, it was a, it was a luxury. It was it opened up a whole new world to us. New River and and then of course you know, Chuckalusky and Palm Beach and Biscayne Bay and then and then down to the Keys. But my parents were were married and uh, and spent their honeymoon in Marathon. So I think I'm probably like a salmon. I have to go back to that same rock where, <laughs> where it all started. And uh, um, but my father was a, a journeyman fisherman, but uh, but always passionate. He was very passionate about about fishing. But back in the day on Las Olas Boulevard, he caught redfish, black drum, things you wouldn't even expect to see there. Uh, and with regularity, the fishery was was incredible back then. But you were not a, a sportsman per se, basketball, football, baseball. You were a golfer, right? I, I was a golfer. Um, uh, Dad wanted me to be a professional golfer. And uh, we fished um, all the time on the golf courses. And that was that was the that was the undoing of my golf career. So that's when the light bulb went off. Like I'm fit. I'm Fishing is embedded. Well, fishing was always embedded. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, how could you be uh, a young man growing up in in South Florida and not think it's the coolest thing in the world? It's just it's it still is. It still is. I mean, every morning we wake up, you just know that sometime during that day, the coolest thing is going to happen, or maybe five or six of them. You know, and that's that's when that stops, then maybe it's time to not do this anymore. I was asking Nikki yesterday. We were on the boat. Um, and normally we don't talk about, you know, that, this kind of stuff, because I just take it for granted. He's been in, next to me his entire life. But I asked him, when was that light bulb moment for you that when that switch flipped and you knew that fishing was going to be a part of your life? Yeah. Yeah. It was in, uh, it was in one of those golf course ponds, bass fishing. And I don't, I think I was like six or seven and you know, for the longest time I was right by your side and you'd rig my baits and you'd cast it out and I'd reel it back and get a bite and catch the fish. But you were kind of fishing for me. But 
this one um, instance, you let me go on my way and you told me to go down by the corner and I was rigging my culprit bait. I, I remember this vividly and threw it out there and caught my first fish by myself. And I was like, holy crap, I can do this all by myself. And it, I showed you my bass and ran over and, I, released them over. and I was like, I'm, I'm hooked. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So there's, there's, we all have moments. I, I, Remember the first time I tied a renegade. I'd fly fished a little bit, not successfully, with my father. And then Chuck Fothergill taught uh, a few of us how to tie flies. And I tied this little renegade and went to the river down below Aspen at the time in the early 60s. And I saw this fish come up and hit my dry fly. And it's like, wow, you know, I actually fooled something, <laughs> you know. And we were talking or speaking at breakfast this morning about how cool tarpon is. And it's like, if you could go into the wilderness and rope a bull elk and handline that thing, you know, to your feet and get him on the ground and take that rope off of his antlers and to get a photograph of, of that rack and have, watch him jump up and run off. That's what we do with these dinosaurs. Catch and release. Which is so awesome. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it we is. We get to go play with these monster dinosaurs. Yes, I, I, I do. I that's a great story about the bass. Um, I do have a defining moment, um, and it and it's on the wall right there under the light. That little tarpon right there. Uh, it, it's all of twelve inches long, and um, and and we were playing. We were on a golf course, like your story, Nikki, and we were on a golf course, and there was always baby tarpon on this golf course that was off of. Uh, Broward Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale. And this is going back to the 60s. And and I said to my dad one day, my, my uncle, my uncle Mo up in uh, um, Des Plaines, Illinois, had given me a fly reel when I was five years old. And it was the damnedest looking thing. And I think they're still around now, but the reel was mounted down with a lever on it, that automatic. Oh, right. Remember sure. that thing? Yeah, the clutch line. Oh my God. If you hit that thing for an extra second, the all the lines zipped in well the first bluegill i ever caught on i thought you were supposed to hit the lever and it and it came out of the water and and hit my forehead the brim did and left two spikes in my forehead and i had to and and my uncle had to tell me no that's not how you when a fish eats you don't that's just for bringing a line back in when you're finished fishing so i took that reel and i and i said to my father uh, it was in the summer and it was on a uh, sunday afternoon and i said dad tomorrow morning uh, i'm going to catch my first tarpon and he said, he said, if you catch your first tarpon, he was so sure it wasn't going to happen. He said, I'll mount it for you. And I said, you got a deal. You're on. So I rode my bike the five miles to this, to this place, this golf course. And I snuck out on the course at dawn and there was a little Creek there and it was just, it had boiling with little tarpon. And I threw this fly and I hooked one and lost it. And I was just literally crying. I, I, I thought I'd blown my only chance and I throw again and I got a bite and and I, and I got this fish and I got him up on the bank and I jumped on him. I just dove on him. <laughs> it was in the rough of one of the fairways of this little par three golf course. The name of the course was Cy Foster's. And I dove on this thing and I immediately, there was still tarpon all over the place behind me, but I had it. I had it in hand and I rode, I, I was like Lance Armstrong riding home. And, and, I, and I get home and I opened the door and I stuck my head in the door. My dad was eating breakfast and he looked over and he knew and that's the first time I ever heard him use a really bad word. He said, I just hope it's not big. <laughs> and I stick this little tarpon in the door. He said, a deal's a deal. <laughs> so there it is. It's about 
It's 55 years old. You know, that's crazy because if you look around, you have won all the major tournaments. And that might be as significant as one of these big majors. Oh, by far. By far it is. I, I, you, you've asked me before, and, and that's a question that people will ask frequently. You know, what's your biggest accomplishment? What's the thing you're most proud of? It's definitely, it's definitely that. It's having a father um, like my dad, who's 93 now. And as we're talking, he's on the tennis court. You know, which is just ridiculous, but um, it's having a father. And then, uh, you know, Randy Tao, Captain Randy Tao. For sure. Yeah, Randy and I were standing in line at a at a Redbone one day, and um, we're we're waiting to get checked in at Chica, and I and I see this red red headed beautiful woman, and I I said I looked at her for about ten seconds, and I said I can't, I can't believe how she's treating these people, and and Randy said, Hey, you're married, you know, just just forget about it. And I said, Randy, I said, I, that's going to be my wife. And he said, no, no, no. She's married. You're married. You know, he goes, look, I know you don't drink and do drugs. What, what are you thinking? What's wrong with you? And I said, I don't, I don't know how to explain this, but, and, and, you know, here we are. We've been married for 15 years and that's the way it worked out. I, I, I don't know how to explain how I knew, but I knew. But that opens the, the door Oh, that's a good segue. That Very op- good. <laughs> that opens the door <laughs> to your clairvoyance. And Tim Mahaffey said oh, that you're no. a savant. Okay. <laughs> but taking a look at some of these stories, you have clairvoyance in the fact that you predict things before they happen. And I'm going to give this, this story that Tim told me, and you can refine it. But Tim said that you're going to meet him at the dock the next morning, like 4.30 in the morning. Tim said, no, I don't want to go at 4.30 in the morning. I'm a fly guy. We're practicing for a tournament. <laughs> but you demanded him to meet him, him to meet you at 4.30. He gets there, and you told him, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's, it has to do with a spotted eagle ray. Tim says he's out there fishing. He's got his fly rod, you know, pointed out there. He's looking for a fish. And a spotted eagle ray jumps out of the water, clears his fly rod, lands, and he hears this big exhaust from the back of the boat. I'm glad that's over with. I I was very glad it was over with because I I really thought there might have been an injury involved. I knew it was going to be close. Um, I had just a clear, a, a clear as day picture of it happening. Uh, and I knew it was going to be close. I just didn't know how close. And I didn't want to tell Tim that it was going to be really close. Might be dangerous. Yes. How'd that come to be? Where did, where did this image come from? When did you feel or think that, that there was going to be a, a uh, connection with an eagle ray that day? Uh, In your sleep that night? No, it's not a sleep thing. Uh, dreams are dreams. These things are different. These things are um, they are more palpable. They're more... Um, they're they're far they're far more black and white in your mind's eye they're not it's not a dream a dream and a wish is is different than this i I don't i I don't i don't have the background to explain what it is but but sometimes it's good things don't happen but sometimes like with marcy great things happen so it does this happen often daily and from what age did you start having these clairvoyant images Uh, I, I guess as a child, I sometimes saw fish. I could see 
fish in a bucket or fish on a stringer or um, I could see things happening at home. Um, I don't see dead people. <laughs> like, like tiger <laughs> commercial right. i see dead people that's right that's right what right what's the most profound image that came to be and you know that might be more profound than that eagle ray jumping over mahaffey's fly rod um i was in a head-on collision in 1981 uh with a um a, a drunk driver who had his license was suspended and he fell asleep at the wheel. It was right in front of Broward community college at 12 midnight. And I was, and I was driving and I had a pickup truck with a uh, 11 foot fiberglass boat in the back. Um, and, and this guy came, there was a policeman behind him getting ready to pull him over. And a guy came across the intersection and it was a 45 mile an hour, uh, head on collision. And, and when I got in the car to make that trip, which was only three miles, I could, I could hear, hear, I could feel and hear the impact. And I felt it. And I just, I, I just, you know, said almost a little prayer, please. I know, I know what's going to happen. I just hope I'm going to be okay. Or that it happens to some object that's on the side of the road and nobody's hurt. And, and, and it happened. And, and I, Yes, that was the most profound, profound event where it ever occurred. Is it is it uncomfortable to have this kind of vision? I, you know, on a daily basis. No, not now, but 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 it's isolating when you're young. I I just felt odd. I I probably it's the reason that I, you know, I when when our fishing's done, you know, I like to go home and do my stuff. I don't. Right. It's not that I don't like to socialize. I just kind of avoid it. Yeah, it's very isolating when you're young because you don't you don't really understand what it is. You don't know you don't you, you can't tell if it's normal or not. But by listening to your friends, you can tell that it's not normal, but but I don't know if it's good or bad. I yeah. I don't know. I think that's one reason why I always liked hanging out with you. You know, I knew that you had something special at the uh, breakfasts at the tournaments. You'd always be sitting over in a corner and I'd come over with my little bagel and, and hang out. I just love to hear what you had to say. Well, I loved hanging out with you too. <laughs> and, and it was a lot more comfortable than the end of the tournament day when we're, when we're waiting for your catch when you got in, wondering what the hell you caught and wondering how bad we got thrashed. So <laughs> oh, no, it was always the other way around. No, breakfast was a lot more comfortable than, <laughs> than the after. <laughs> no, gosh, it was always great, uh, those tournaments. Um, did... This sort of vision and clairvoyance, how did that translate to your fishing and the success that you've had as a fisherman? Because, I don't know, you can tell me, I mean, how many Grand Slams do you have now? Uh, we have, uh, Marcy keeps a very careful record of how many we have and where we get them and who catches them. I, I believe we're up to 770 now. Grand Slams. Yes. And you've won the Holly, the Golden Fly, the Spring Bone, the Fall Blown the uh the dell brown one of only two guides to win a bonefish permit and tarpon tournament right scott collins uh, did it with uh uh smitty right yes man what a combination those guys were right yeah. holy crap right and yeah. only two anglers have done that smitty and myself uh yes and and i'm not sure if mark richens who by the way is fishing with joe today here i don't know if mark did it or not i don't know if he's got a I'm not sure, but I know you were the first to do it. Right. I, yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Um, how do you go to the Key West and beat all those guys? I mean, you don't fish down there. You go to the Slam, you go down, and you win. I mean, what makes you so good as a fisherman? You don't have a GPS. You don't have a watch. No, no tide charts. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do this? And you're running around in the dark at three in the morning. I love to run in the dark. I, I was terrified of the dark when I was young. And, 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 and Marcy and I have put out uh, PVC pipes with reflective tape on them from uh, Jewfish Creek to um, Boca Grand Key and from here to Flamingo. I, we can go from here to Flamingo at midnight much safer than we can go in the daytime with no GPS, just with some reflective a flashlight or a, uh, a Q beam. Um, Key West, um, Timmy Carlisle, who fishes down there, who's, who's the master of Key West down there and has fished there professionally for 40 years, he, he calls it the land of stupid. And, and you know, if you fish down there, especially where the bonefish are concerned, in Isla Morada, where we learn to bonefish, if, pardon me, if you can, if you can consistently catch bonefish here, um, on any tackle, I think you can go anywhere in the world and successfully bonefish and, and anywhere else in the world, like Key West is almost like going somewhere else in the world. When you get past marathon, that fishery down there, um, uh, is nearly virginal. There's, there's edges and coves and rocky points down there for bonefish and permit and, and tarpon, of course, but m mainly the bonefish that go months without getting fished. You know, months that that backcountry behind Sugarloaf is intricate, and and those fish are, are relatively untouched. So I think um, fishing here is the land of difficulty, and and you have to fish fish that have been pounded in Alamorada. And if if you can fish successfully here, you can take that anywhere else, and and I think do pretty good. And the anglers that I fished with over the years who have taken it upon themselves to practice. Uh, for the tournaments, they they just sharpen their casting accuracy, and that makes life so much easier. You know, Mo Smith and Rich Barnett and Cal Blumberg, Dan Zakari, uh, Scott Deal, all those guys, their casting accuracy certainly helps your your tournament wins, no question. Didn't you used to train your anglers um, in your backyard or have some drills that you'd get your anglers sharpened before the tournaments? And what were those drills? I, I, I have I have done that with some people, just kind of laid the groundwork um, on on what what I saw years ago. There was a there was a guy who was at the War Memorial Auditorium and he had a Zebco two oh two and and we all had that. That was our first reel. Maybe not so much now. People start with sophisticated spinning rods now, but spinning reels. But we had that old push button Zebco 202. And I remember watching him. They had a little portable trout pool that was nothing but a, a, a plastic rectangular, you know, 40 foot by 10 foot wide. And they, they would charge anglers a dollar for to go in there and try to catch the trout on the corn kernels. But this guy put on a casting exhibition. He had a Dixie cup. Um, down at the end of the pool that was suspended on a two by four and nine times out of 10, he could, he could put this little rubber casting plug inside that Dixie cup, uh, that had, was half full of water and not knock it over. Oh my gosh. And, and I'm watching this and I was very young and, and that left such a great impression on me. I'm like, I, I talked to this guy later. I, after he was finished, I said, how can you do that? He said, he said, 
Anything that you want to get great at, you have to do millions and millions of times so you don't think about the mechanics of it. He said, when that thing's going out there, he said, I don't have time to think. And, and of course, you play golf, you play tennis. It's the same thing. You, if you stop and have to think about what you're doing while you're doing it, you're not going to do it properly. You, you have to have that you have to have that instinct right there. It's got to be at your fingertips. And then the moment's over with, it's finished. So when you're, when you're fly fishing or spin fishing, you know, not every shot, you can't see the school of tarpon coming a quarter mile away every time. Or in the case of bonefish and permit, as you know, there he is. Oh, now. it's over. It's over. Sorry. It's over. That's how much time you have to do the right thing, but not just the right thing, the precise thing. And, and, and we, we, um, laid the groundwork with some of the casters that I just mentioned. And for, for the ones I didn't mention, I apologize. Uh, but those casters really practiced. They, they took hula hoops out. Um, Mo Smith used mechanical, uh, ducks on a pond. His, his son ran them and he threw at those with fly and spin. So, you know, here's a guy that fishes, fishes just the tournaments. He just fishes here 10 days a year, fishing against people who are fishing here 60 days a year. So how can he possibly have a chance? And that's what he had to do. That's what those guys had to do. But it's just a matter of, it's just a matter of target practice. But again, getting so comfortable with that equipment that you stop thinking like every great cast you've ever made, you never afterwards said, Gosh, I'm glad I stopped and I put my foot this way right. and made Waited that proper. Waited for my back cast right. to get loaded. Right. It, it just happened and you caught the fish. And that's how to get to the tournament caliber, that's how your fishing has to go to be successful. And those guys all took it upon themselves to to do that. And they made, they made you know, guiding them rather easy at times because they were that good. They could get them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the question uh, I asked you a second ago about no GPSs and, and tides. And obviously, f- fishing is all based on current and water flow. And so one example, Mahaffey, I've got to go back to Tim because you and Tim were the greatest bone fishermen probably ever or ever will be. He was mentioning one time, he said, we're going to go on this little knuckle. And he, he told me that you said... In a little bit, there are going to be two bonefish. They're going to come up and they're going to tail or mud, and they're going to be significant weights. And what happened? Well, that's an old trick. You, you, when you're in the back of the boat, you see the fish first before you start telling them what they're going to see, <laughs> and and then then you just say, yeah, here, there two are going to come right around the corner. And in fact, they're going to be 10 feet to the right of that lobster pot. And that's what happened. No, that's no. not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> So how the hell do you do this? <laughs> it, it, it's, You're it's, a genie. It's, repu- it's, it's repetition. It's just repetition. But you knew, but, so you had seen those two bonefish before? Do, we, do exactly that on that tide? Yeah. Yeah. I, they're, they're, they repeat behavior more than we will ever live to. You, you think we're routinized in like when we have breakfast and what we have for lunch, where we sit for dinner. Bonefish tarpon and permit... If they do something different out of the box, it's the same thing they did different last time they did something different. They're, they're always like, predictable. Well, to some extent. And that's why I was saying before, that's why I don't want to miss one second of the educational process. I don't want to miss any of that because 
those little things are so important. I mean, they're critically important in our in our business. Obviously, they were way more important in the tournaments. When For you're sure. in a tournament setting, it's it's you don't you don't try to catch fish. You have to catch fish. You have to do it. And and Tim, I don't know where he got this from. Maybe from his trout fishing, but um, but I've I've had a chance to fish with a lot of really really great fly fishermen. Tim has some kind of a um, uh, uh, you used the word savant before. He has some odd knack for knowing somehow exactly where that fly is laying on the bottom for the bonefish. And I've seen him do this so many times. And and he moves the fly when I wouldn't. I, I'm I'm pulling him and we'll stop. And here comes the big fish mudding. You know when we had the giant alamorada sure. fish and the giant fish in the bay, which by the way, as you know. It's not like catching three and four pounders. That was a totally different fishery, as different as tennis is from racquetball. So it seems a little bit similar, but those big fish, you had to have not an A game, you had to have a triple A game to catch them, mm-hmm. uh, especially on fly. But but Tim would be up there and and he would just do a couple little things with the fly. And I would say to myself, what in the hell are you doing? It's, you know, it's way too early or it's way too late. And then you know, he'd come tight. And his understanding of, his understanding of where that thing was in the water was the, the step above uncanny. Just there, there's, I don't know how he knew. I couldn't, he couldn't see it. There's no way you can see it, but he would know in three feet of water, those fish would be mudding and there's current and there's other factors, but somehow he knew right where the fly was and right the exact second to give it just that nice little nudge. And then boom, he's he's on. I what saw him a, do it. I saw him do it hundreds of times. What a team you guys were. Oh uh, well, he, like I said, when when someone like that is in the bow, it's pretty easy. What I have to do, just give him a sandwich and a coke, and we're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> he tells another story about uh, a, about a bull shark that grabbed one of your bonefish. Sure, tell us that one. Uh, that was in the uh, that was in the spring fly, and it was it was a. Uh, it was a big fish that he hooked that was on a ray. It was in three feet of water. And and this was up in Biscayne Bay on one of the strip banks up near up near Soldiers. And 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 he did the same thing. He threw at this ray. And I, you know, I'm thinking, go ahead, move it. Come on. And he just and he moved it once and he's on. And this fish ran a quarter of a mile, as those big giant ones could frequently do. And we fought it in and got it closer. And then it ran again. You know, you go through that, that circle gets smaller around the boat. Sure. And then right in the sunlight, um, we saw this tremendous head weight coming. And I said, Tim, we got a problem. He's coming. And and a, a two to 300 pound shark came in right on the bonefish and he was going to eat him. And and I, there was nothing to do. I was up on the tower. I couldn't start the motor. I was in a, I was in a place to do nothing. It was maybe, I guess, maybe 25 or 30 feet off the bow. So I did, I just reacted and I, and I threw the push pull point first, and it it hit the hit the bull shark right in the gill slits over Timmy's head, and 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 actually injured the bull shark, and the shark swam to the side, and Tim said, "I felt him bump it. I, I he bumped it. He ate it. I probably have half." And he we we got the fish. The fish was still paddling, and we netted it, and along the sides of it, it had a ring like almost up to the gill plates, and it was a twelve pound eight ouncer, and it it helped us win that tournament. It was one of our weights that helped us win. And it had scales missing. And we put it in the tank and it, and, and it lived all day beautifully. And we got back to Lorelei and released it perfectly alive. Swam off. Yeah. So the bull shark ate the bonefish 
and you threw the push pole like a javelin. Hit at, him in the face. He 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 did he he had it. The, the ring of the scales where you could see the disruption of scales. And you know, a twelve pound bonefish is you know it's a pretty right. it's a pretty girthless animal. And yeah, he did. We saw the whole thing happen uh, right at our feet, and my heart just sank. And I didn't. I you know I I don't even remember. You know, we we're talking about throwing without thinking. I don't even remember throwing the pole. No. I got three times wow. second in the spring bonefish tournament. No wonder we couldn't beat you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> You, a clairvoyant, a savant, and God, I'm sure, it was in there somewhere. Thank, oh, God, thank God it man. happened that way, yeah. I mean, this is a crazy-ass story. It's true. Yes. That's, that stuff's all pretty true. Wild. Let's talk about uh, tackle a little bit. You guys were fishing all clear fly lines for bonefish back in the, in the late 90s. And I don't think many tournament fishermen today are using all clear fly lines. What kind of an advantage is that? Yeah. Because the fish is out out front. You got a twelve or fifteen foot leader and a normal colored fly line. I see all clear fly lines working if you're fishing in schools, like in the Bahamas, where the lead part of the school can get by the end of your fly line and you can hook a fish in the back of the school. But tell me why it works when you're fishing for a, a single big fish bonefish. The all clear fly line, unless maybe in the false casting. No, I don't. I don't think it helps in the false casting. But, but again, to the point of of how good Tim was at um, moving that fly at the exact right second. Not only did he use all clear fly line, he used like a twenty foot leader. He used a twenty foot leader, and his his thoughts were, and and I couldn't agree with him more. His thoughts were that uh, when that fly is laying down. They can't, they can't hear as much of the fly line with a 20-foot leader. Right. And he was right. He was exactly right. And again, remember, this was on those giant fish. Releases. It doesn't matter. Uh, right, right. Two and three-pound fish, you can probably do a cannonball off the tower in the middle of the cast, and they're just they're going to see the fly, and they're going to glom it. They're just going right. to you know, destroy it. But the, the remember, not every single one of your casts at Bonefish or permit for that matter, are head-on. Some of them are angular. Some of them are perpendicular. Some of them are over their shoulder. And then how many times have you thrown uh, at your target and your fly line halfway to the fish spooked another fish? I'm not saying that the clear fly line will stop that from happening every time, Right. but it, it's a definite advantage. And, and when we throw at permit, we throw the fly and we try to make the fly land right right here on a single or if it's a school we try to put the fly in the middle of the school so that clear fly line helps them. clearly helps right. you in those situations do you and, use a clear fly line tarpon fishing also oh always all clear oh my god always always because then you know you 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 get to a, a long string of fish and if you're on the ocean side and it's clear and those fish are traipsing the ocean side going either north or southbound you can almost bet someone else has thrown at them before you have. And and with the clear fly line, you let the lead swim by. Mm -hmm. And we even go sometimes two or three fish back from the lead fish and then move the fly. Right. And sometimes a color fly line, you can get away with doing that. Most of the time you cannot. Right. Have you tried the ghost tip? I have. Portland ghost tip? I have. That nine foot? That's what I use. Yep. And it's a very effective line. Yes, it is. So when you're bait fishing, what's your setup look like? You use Power Pro or braid or monofilament? So I, I think you use monofilament, correct? We 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 tried the braid for uh, 
two years, I fished braid side by side with mono on our uh, rods that we cast with the 10 pound spinners. And then particularly we used them on our 20 pound spinners in, in the tarpon live bait fishing, either uh, daylight or pre-dawn. And we found, came to an interesting conclusion through observation, certainly not scientific, but we, with our um, still fishing with crabs and mullet, we got 20% fewer bites with braid. And, and I didn't really understand why. And then one of the gentlemen I fished with who uh, fishes the tarpon in Boca Grande, he told me that um, when the spring, the spring tides come, they're the hill tides, I guess they call them, when they're real forceful water movement, that they can watch on their fish finder and they can see the tarpon make a 20 foot wide hole around the braid. He thought that it vibrates. He thought there was something, hmm. there, there was something audible about the presence of the braid. And when we would cast to bonefish and permit, if you have that shot where you're casting perpendicular to a fish or sometimes over him or over his shoulder, we've seen uh, both bonefish and permit get to the braid, which is at, at that, at that pound test, it's very thin, mm -hmm. you know, eight pound braid is nothing. Right. It's like your hair and, and they'll get to it and, and almost treat it like a perimeter. They'll get to it and swim right next to it, but not go under it. And, and this could be in, in 10 inches of water, or I've even seen it in two and three feet of water. So there's most of the time, it probably doesn't make any difference, but for what braid costs and the difficulty of working with it and in situations where it costs us fish, it's not, it's not worth the difference in price. And yes, you can cast 25% further, but, but hell, I'm, I'm not accurate 110 feet from the boat. Right. I can't, I can't put it in the hula hoop there anyway. So that, that distance, and then you can't control your entry. You're with a crab or a shrimp. You want to make it land as softly or a jig or a, plastic bait you want to make it land as softly as you can and i can't do that at 100 feet right i can't i can't make and, that happen and are you using all circle circle hooks no no the only circle hooks we use are are on our uh, on our crabs in the morning the um the the circle hooks at least in the way that we fish our bonefish and permit they i can't hook a shrimp real good with a circle hook i i just i can't that we use one oh just regular little j mustads or eagle claws and, and those seem to work just fine for us. And you don't have issues with them swallowing? No, the no, no, yeah. no, do not. And we don't, we don't free spool when, when we throw and we see fish go down on it and, and it comes tight. We just crank. We never even set the hook. We stopped setting the hook 30 years ago, even on J hooks. We just crank like a madman. Just get tight. And get tight and stay tight. And right. that way it's in, it's in and it's done. You know, it's interesting because I remember seeing old videos of Billy Pate tarpon fishing at home Sassa. And I remember watching him set the hook. His hands were not on the fly line to create resistance. You know, you right. strip strike, you hang on. I remember this, right? the videos. I and remember this is how them. we hook them now. You you get tight, you hang on, and let the fish set the hook. Yes. And I remember when I first started tarpon fishing, I remember Billy Pate, two hands on the fly rod, ripping it like this. And you know, his drag is set at however pounds it might have been couldn't have been a whole lot and you wonder why fish were falling off well i remember i remember those videos and also don't forget the evolution of of hooks and flies themselves remember those flies they threw in those days were four and five inches long and they would use three and four and five of these gigantic hooks and now look at our hooks it's a it's a worm fly you know the bonefish flies and hooks we use 
are, are bigger than the tarpon flies now. Right. And, and most of those hooks are a number one or number one oh, and you're exactly right. You don't you don't have to set the hook anymore. You stay tight and remain you tight. You got them. And, and they're on, they're stuck. Yeah. I, I, I read a, uh, I read something years ago about the, about the owner hooks and the gamagatsus and all these new uh, types of hooks. But there was a guy that came and gave a seminar um, at, a, uh, at a hotel. And, and this, is, this is going way back before these hooks really became popular. And he had a very interesting paraphrasing of, of how to set the hook on these fish. He said, don't set the hook come tight with the reel on the spinning rod or the line with the fly rod. He said, and, and I'll never forget this, this, this left an impression on me too. He said, if you try to do that, you'll rob the point of the hook from its destination. And I thought that was just perfectly said, right? And that's what's happening. The hook will go perfectly where it's designed to go, wherever that is. And it, and then it's in and it, and it stays. Yeah. And he was right. It's amazing. Cause we're using number one. Yeah. Worm hooks now. Yeah. Short shank number ones. Right. And then the and in the old gold cups we used to fish, we used eighty pound or hundred pound monofilament tippet. For shock, yeah. For shock. Now we're right. down to what fifty floor. Forty and fifty. Yeah, right, right. All day long. It's forty a, pounds. It's amazing. It's amazing. Tell us about um that big fish you caught, which is this one right here. Right. You know, fishing in in the Tell us about this thing and what you where were you and what you saw. Well, the most important part of it is that it was prior to Marcy and I getting married and uh and and I and I we went out pre-dawn one morning and and had I gave her a crab that was you know maybe the size of a of a frisbee and just kind of hooked it on and snickered to myself and you know just sit in the corner hold this and get her out of the way well I <laughs> don't want to kind of say it that way but <laughs> no but you know but kind of right let the men do what the men are supposed to do and <laughs> and and she came tight and I heard this fish jump in the dark and I I said, "Wow, that really sounds like a big one." And when it fell in, it sounded, it sounded like the proverbial truck falling off of the Channel Five bridge. And and I said, "That's that's a big fish." So we followed it, and and, and I then finally it got light. You know, the fight lasted into light, and and I looked and I said, "That's it's gargantuan. Its its girth is, uh, you know, whatever it was, forty eight inch girth, and wow. the fish was seven foot something, and and you know the one on the wall." Here is is a fish from Pier sixty six in in the intercoastal, and it's one hundred and ninety one pounds, and this fish dwarfed that, um, and and that was that was before we were married. But I think I think that fish sealed the deal. <laughs> Put the hook in. I think it did it. <laughs> you know, what? let's talk about your eyes for a second. Your vision, the few times we fished, is just off the charts. I remember Nikki was on the bow of the boat. We were tarpon fishing out by Long Key Point or somewhere. Yep. And you said, okay, you got them at 10 o'clock. Here they come. And I, I'm behind Nikki. I'm sitting I mean, I, on the yeah. console. And I'm going, I don't see him. <laughs> I remember I was on the bow and they were coming at 10 o'clock and it was glary and pretty windy. And you were going, okay, here they come. Here they come. 80 yards. And I'm looking, I'm looking. Okay, start casting. They're coming in range and I'm starting casting and... I don't know where to cast. I'm just kind of basing it off of what Mark's saying, and sure, sure as crap, they come and hit the boat and spook, and I never saw them. And that happened three times. I had three shots. That happened three times, and I got so frustrated. I was like, Dad, I you got to come this. up here. I can't do this. I can't see them. You got to, you got to try. And you go, give me the rod. Let me, let me see. Same, <laughs> same. I thing. said the same thing to Nikki. <laughs> Nikki, I can't do this. <laughs> what, what is it about your eyes? I'll tell you who else has the best eyesight I've ever seen. 
uh, is Raymond Floyd. I've I heard been, that. Oh my God! I, better than yours. I I have fished with Raymond since uh, about 1980, maybe even a little earlier than that. And um, uh, there was never a time when we're in the boat when, and even now, I, I still fish with Raymond. He, if you if you see something before he does, you say, okay, one o'clock, you know, 80 feet. He said, I got him. I got him. I got him. And, and Ray tells the story that, as you know, at the time, he was the oldest winner of the U.S. Open. The last time he won the Open, he was the oldest winner. And he said, he said something's wrong with my eyes. And he, he went to the doctor. Maria sent him to the doctor. And uh, he, he, he loves telling this story. And he said, I go to the doctor and I get in there. And um, the doctor says, well, let's, let's look at the eye chart down here. And he said, come to the hallway. And they go to the hallway and... The doctor says, Raymond, I want you to read the smallest, the lowest line on that chart. And Raymond says, okay, made in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor says, no, you, he says, you ain't seeing that. And Raymond says, made in Chicago. And it was, the, of course, it's the little right. thing at the bottom, you know, where the damn poster was made. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He's, he's sick good. Sick good eyesight. Just incredible. What... Um... Where do you see fishing? You know, everybody talks about the good old days. Where do you see fishing in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I think the kind of fishing that we like to do uh, has definitely seen its apex and its heyday. I, I Maybe from 85 to 95, maybe a little longer than then, longer than that. It was It was at its highest point. It was the most popular it could be here. Um, I don't know if we're going to see that again. I'm hoping that with the bonefish coming back the way they are, that we may get to see it again when they start to get big. Um, but it, it doesn't get easier every year. It's getting, it gets more difficult to produce numbers of fish that bring people back here. Uh, and, and that's, that's merely from a guide's point of view. It's, it's, that gets harder to do every year. It doesn't get easier. Maybe it's a function of age. Um, maybe it's not, maybe the fishery is changing a little bit, but we do, my goodness, how lucky are we to, to live where we live? Um, we, we get, we get the other fisheries too. Like we have the park, thank goodness for the park. And we have the Gulf, the, the, you know, the, the mackerels, and we have all the other things that we've added to our, uh, our list of things to do here now. Um, not just bonefish tarpon and permit. We have lots of other things to do. So that part of the fishery has changed. We, we've added more things to do to try to fill in the gaps. What do you think happened to those big Alamrata bonefish? Boy, that's a trillion dollar question. I, I was fortunate enough to do some projects with some of the most knowledgeable people on bonefish in the world. And that's Mike Larkin and also uh, Dr. Roy Crabtree, who also knows a thing or two about tarpon. Um, uh, they are, they're completely miffed. They have no idea what happened to those giant fish. Um, Do I have old age? Well. And the cold, the freeze? No, the freeze, I don't think the freeze did anything. I know the freeze killed some fish, but that, that bonefish decline was already firmly in place before that freeze. Right. And, and it and continued about on, on the same scale, uh, even, even when the freeze happened. Um, when, when you talk to different people, about what's happened. I, I like to talk to some of the people in town here who know more about big bonefish than anyone. Um, I've talked to, I've talked to Timmy Klein. I've talked to, uh, further back, Jimmy Albright and Jack brothers. 
and and they felt they thought that the survival rate of bonefish that we caught and released was very very low they thought that it was less than 10% and what they were citing was that when we let go a 10 pound bonefish let's let's say we brought one of the lorelei to get weighed or if you caught a 12 pounder out in the boat that was not in a tournament situation you wanted a picture of it and you you, you did your best to handle them you know with with great care because you didn't want to injure him but the fact remains he was out of the water and you put him back in the water and he'll swim away but what happens in the next 30 minutes he's exhausted and i remember jack brothers pointed this out he just said those fish are they'll swim out in a channel or out in a basin and he said they're dead he said a lemon shark's going to get them a black tip a bull shark they're gone he said there there's you're not going to see them anymore and 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 i i don't know if i agree with that or not but that's from someone a, a few people have said that who have a lot more experience in the Isla Mirada area, which was the Valley of the Giants. Mm-hmm. This was the epicenter of the, in the world of gigantic bonefish. So maybe that's true. Maybe that's what happened. But I'm sure like with every declining fishery that there's a long list of factors. It can't just be one thing. It's, it has to be 20 things and probably 19 of them we're not even aware of. So I, I don't know the answer to that. Right. How, how often do you see a 10 pound bonefish in the flats around here? Not very often anymore. Um, uh, probably more in Biscayne Bay. We see more uh, eight, nine, ten, and eleven pound fish in Biscayne Bay over the last three or four years than we do here. But, but Nikki, the the other part of that is because of the low percentage of finding one, we don't go look for them anymore either. I, we we have, I have eight hours of someone on the boat, and we have to go catch some bonefish at least part of the day if we decide to do that. So I can't go looking at those spots. Right. For one shot that or two shots. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Tell us about your your early morning rituals. Give me a day in the life of fishing with Mark. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty boring. I I don't think so. Uh, well, it starts the night before when I go to bed at seven o'clock. If I if I make final jeopardy, it's a big night. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge night for me. Um, we I, I wake up at three and then do my emails and and work out and get everything ready and we try to we try to leave the dock almost everybody who leaves the dock at five eventually wants to go at 4 30 and then they eventually want to go at four and they try to back it up from there but because the fishing is so good well the 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 tarpon the tarpon is nocturnal he's he's they feed at night that's when they bite other than a worm hatch or the mullet run here's a question to think about how many times have you been around tarpon that were feeding in the daytime other than those two situations and the answer is almost never no right they're traveling or you'll see them that's right that's right and if you make a good enough shot you can still catch them but there's something uh uh one of the one of the senior guides here who's caught thousands and thousands of tarpon uh at the midnight hour vic gaspany vic calls it the greatest show on earth he says don't miss it he says you got to be there for it and listen, some mornings, if there's a thunderstorm around or there's something anomalous in the weather, we we don't get a bite. But, you know, 90% or more of the mornings, we make some kind of good contact with them. And then some mornings, it's just, it sounds like a shooting range out there. It's just, it's unbelievable. Uh, just unbelievable to, to be there. Vic, Vic called them night dumb. He said the, the tarpon are, are, you know, night dumb and dark dumb. And he said, don't miss it. 
It's the greatest show on earth. And he's right. He's, he's right. And it's also the greatest way to get your slam started. You know, if you have a couple tarpon out of the way before 6 a.m., you're two, you, you know, two thirds of the way you got the to day go. It hasn't even begun. Yeah, right, right. And, and people are still eating, you know, eating breakfast at the turtle, which is fine. That's great. But you don't want them on the water. No. They're getting in your way. Well, no, but, you know, yeah. it, it's just a, it's a fishery that's, it's, it's a very unique and, and incredibly productive fishery for tarpon. Incredibly productive. And also, too, in that hour of the night, you get to see some interesting things over Flamingo, from what I understand. Oh, goodness gracious. Yes, we have. <laughs> so tell us about your experiences with UFOs. <laughs> um. Sometimes, sometimes I'm reluctant to talk to folks about this. They kind of make sport of it. But then sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll say, hey, you know, let me tell you what I saw. And, and they're all over it. And they've also seen, I, I, I think one of the tarpon tournaments uh, about four years ago, there was, a, uh, there was a glowing disc back near on the other side of Rabbit Key Basin. And just about the whole, the first two flights of people that went out, certainly the 545ers, they saw it. And then the six o'clock and maybe the 602s, as you know, we leave in the flights. Sure. And, and they all got to see it. And there was a hovering disc back there. Um, we have, I've probably seen this thing or the things, oh, I would guess 25 or 30 times and, and, maybe 10 or 15 times with extremely credible witnesses, some in the military, uh, others were pilots. They've seen it. They have no explanation for what it is. It hovers. It goes from point A to point B, which can be three, four, five miles in the literally less than the blink of an eye. It doesn't accelerate. It has no exhaust. It has no noise. I don't know what it is. Um, or they are, I've seen three at a time. Um, several times we've had it come over the house i went and got marcy out of bed at 3 30 in the morning once i said it's it's right over the house do you want to see it and she says no i'm kind of comfortable and i said no you you might want to you might want to see this and and i pulled her i pulled her out of the sack to, to see this thing and it was there and it's just it's beautiful whatever it is it, it's totally cool the first time i saw it i was i fished people from dade and Broward county who if i fished them in the park they don't necessarily want to drive all the way here in the morning and then go from here to the park. So they'll drive right to the park and I'll go over by boat and meet them. And I go over early in the morning so we can get a nice early start. And the first time I saw it, I, I was over by um, uh, Panhandle Key and going through the, you know, the heart of the backcountry there. And, and, I, and I saw this thing really low to the water, really big, big bright disc light. And I, and I looked and I thought it might have been Maybe it has to do with a boat or a sailboat. And then I'm thinking there's no way a sailboat can get back in there with its, you know, with its underneath. It, the keel. Yeah, it, it's, it draws too much water. Even a small sailboat can't get back in there. And I watched it and, 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 it, and it went out. I, I got a 60-second look at it. And I, you know, I went right where it was. It was right where I was going over kind of near the dump keys. And how high above the water? I would say 100 feet. Wow. And, and the times I've been close to it, it's not small. It's the size of a 727. It ain't no little freaking drone. People say, oh, it's a drone. It's not a drone. 727. Oh, it's enormous. Hovering. It's enormous. It's gigantic. And, and the one morning we were out, we saw, uh, as I had told you earlier, we saw two F-15s chase it out to Alligator Light. 
and also two helicopters, military helicopters. One came from Homestead and one came from the Lower Keys right after dawn and they chased it out to Alligator Light. And then it just zipped away at um, some unbelievable speed. And then everybody kind of went their own way. The helicopters went back to where they came from and the jets got back together and they went back to Boca Chita down in the Keys. So it's, I don't know what it is. It's fascinating. Does it scare you? Um, I think it scares Marcy more than it scares me because she knows that I, if I have a park trip, I'll purposely go an hour early to go sit there and wait for it. I want to see it. How often do you see it? We can go two. We can go two or three years without seeing anything, and then I've seen it a couple times in a month. So it's it's not consistent. It's not on a predictable right schedule. Right. It's not. But I know other people here have seen it. They've told me kind of quietly, and and I always I always love when someone else sees it because then I don't feel like it's such an idiot. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Confirmation. Yes. Where would you like to go with this interview for from here? Anything you want to add? Oh gosh, I guess just maybe about some of my fishing heroes. I, I, the first book I ever read in my life was a Joe Brooks book uh, about saltwater fishing, and and I never got to meet Joe. And and my one of my dear friends who was the second owner of Bud and Mary's, Jack Kurtz. Jack Kurtz knew Joe Brooks very well, and and Jack got me my very first my very first charter back in 1977, which I'm always, always grateful for. And he since sold the marina to Richard Stanzik. Um, but I, I got to, I got to meet Kurt Gowdy through Redbone. And I was just as awestruck as I've ever been in my life. I, I, I walked up to Kurt and I said, you know, Mr. Gowdy, I, I, I fish because of your show, the American sportsman. I, I, I watched it. I couldn't wait to, to spend my whole life doing this. And he, he put his hand on my shoulder and, you know, he was so gracious and he was the MC of our events. If you remember so right. several of our For events sure. and even later in age, he had that, that the, voice. Oh my God. The, the broadcaster's golden voice, you know, just unmistakable, just unmistakable, but he was so gracious. And he, he said, you know, he said, I, I, I can't tell you how many people have told me that and what it means to me to hear that from anybody. He said, I, 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 and and he he was there. He got to hand us awards at the podium. And right. you're talking about defining moments in your life. Holy crap! I mean, you know, I, I'm 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 standing next to Kirk Gowdy, and he's giving me a trophy. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me! This is this is the greatest the greatest moment of my life in my fishing life right now. You know, so that that kind of those kind of folks. And then I and then I got to meet and fish with Fluger, with Al, and and Al is the Al is, is the bar of, of a gentleman that needs to be set, and he set it in our industry. He is a gentleman's gentleman. He's, he's kind and gracious, and what a, what a walking encyclopedia of, of our fishery. You know, I, he's been, he, he knows from bluegill to blue marlin in the state of Florida. He knows more, arguably more than anybody knows about Florida's fishery, and he's just such a nice guy. Humble. Oh, so humble. You know, you showed me your, uh, your, your little pouch that Flip had given you. You know, I have a, I have a gaff. I have a, um, I have a hand gaff that uh, Fluger gave me that he and Jimmy Albright used on tarpon, and it's it's wow. just like, it's 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 a prized possession. You know, it's a prized possession. I ask Al, 
years ago we were talking about the park. I said, Al, I said, how long have you been fishing the park? He said, you know, I said, I've been fishing it a long time, you know, really essentially since the late forties and fifties. And I said, what was fishing like at the park back then? What was a typical day at Flamingo like? And he said, well, buddy, let me tell you, we would, we would catch five redfish, three snook and a tarpon. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's not a very good day. I said, Al, that's not very good. He said, no, no, that was standing at the seawall before we put the boat in. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. And if you ever, did you ever get a chance to fish with Al? No, no, well, I've met him at the, you know, some of the events up in Fort Lauderdale. Right. And you know, Al's a world traveler. He, he's a, he's a hunter of the world. And if you ever got to go on the boat with him, you know, we have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some potato chips. Al, <laughs> Al opens the cooler and he has lunch for everybody. He, he's already planned this out and he, he bring he brings this tinfoil out, you know, and. And it's about 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, and he says, I'm hungry. He says, let's eat. So we stake out. And he opens his tin foil. He says, hey, buddy, I bought some rhinoceros testicles from Uganda. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking. He says, a little salty, but delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Steve Ranella. Yeah. <laughs> but Al is a, um, Al is certainly one of my fishing heroes. And he, I've watched him fight fish, and the very first time we fished, he hooked about a 50-pound tarpon on fly back at the Petersons, and he goes up to my tower, my forward tower, and he sits down, and he's fighting this fish, and I'm running the boat and, you know, trying to do a good job. I'm watching Picasso paint, for Christ's sakes, right. you know, and and he's, 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 you know, about six minutes, and the tarpon is laying on its side, and it's done, and I... And I I'm thinking to myself, I didn't see him do a damn thing. I didn't see him do anything up there. You know, we're we're doing this sideways shit and, you know, behind our back and pulling on the line. And and Al was just sitting there. And, I, and I, you talk about a, a, a picture of efficiency. You know, he's doing all those things without doing anything. Right. And, and the it's like fish the rope-a-dope yeah, with yeah, Ali. Yes. It's just, it's on its, it's on its side and it's done. It, it's not like... It's not like if you touched it, it was going to explode again. It was done, finished, you know, and he, it just looked to me like he didn't do a damn thing and he was that efficient and, and just a joy to, to be with him and listen to him, but more to learn from watching what he was doing. Just really, really subtly tremendous, subtly great, really, really good at what he did. Did you have a one specific mentor that really... Uh, helped you become the guide you are today? Um, persistence and solitude and repetition, I guess, was, I really, you know, I didn't have one. I, I didn't, I didn't have one. I, the, the, nothing against the Alamorada area, but years ago when we first started coming down here, it wasn't exactly open arms. Yeah, they didn't really give information very easily. It wasn't even the information. It was, it was, oh, you're, 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 they called us the effing Fort Lauderdale trailer guides. That's, that was, they called John Donnell, Bob Branham, that crew. They, they, nobody, and Kenny Collette, they hated us. They couldn't stand us down here. Um, and maybe rightfully so. Maybe we were coming down here in an area that was kind of a, a, a clique and, and, and a group of guys that, you know, probably were protecting sure. the Alamrod area. And that's fine. I understand it. But we had, shit i had we had our tires flattened at the at lorelei 
uh, all four tires flattened. The first major tournament I fished was a bonefish tournament in the 80s. And I was with Scott Deal, the owner of Maverick, of course, who I'm eternally grateful for, for also helping me structure, you know, what career I have. He, he's been uh, unbelievably generous and gracious and also one of the great fishermen ever uh, with all tackle, with everything. But we got back to the parking lot on the last day and all four of the tires on his, they thought it was my truck, but the, all four tires were flattened. And, and I remember on the old, in the old days when we didn't have caller ID, we just had a stupid answering machine with a tape recorder on it. I had death threats years ago when I first started working down here. And, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't welcome. Or it wasn't, you know, open arms and welcome to the Florida Keys. It was a lot different than the sign said right. up there. When did you first feel like you were welcomed or that you would, had been, uh, I would say. Accepted? Yeah, accepted. Uh, I'm not sure about accepted. I, I, I still feel, I still feel like I'm kind of, you're not a conk. So you're no, I'm get not there. I, I'm, I don't think, I think you really have to be born here to be a true conk. I yeah. don't feel like I'm a conk, but I mean, we, we've directed every single energy and every single dime in our life to be here, to be doing this. So I, I, there was not a defining moment when I was accepted. I, I, there wasn't one. And many people think that you know the backcountry in Biscayne Bay better than anyone ever. So, of course you're accepted. You, well, that's why they're not going to accept yeah, you. Exactly. They came yeah. down here and they kicked their asses in all the tournament for the last 30 years. Well, we're, there's, not a, there's not a day when if we go out and get groceries or whatever, Marcy and I drive down this street and see where we live and we're, we just, I mean, literally get teary-eyed every day. We're so... We're so grateful to be here. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous where it's, we live. You know, and for us too, um, you know, we're transients. We come down and fish for five weeks every day, every every May. And, you know, we were out on the ocean yesterday and it was it was beautiful. And we've had some tough fishing. We were breaking tackle and breaking fly lines and breaking reels and breaking all kinds of stuff. And there was carnage. And uh, we could have gotten really frustrated. And I, I told Nikki, I said, look around. Look at the reef out there. Look at the light. Look at the sand. Yeah. Look at these fish swimming by. The rest of the world is absolutely upside down. Yeah. And it was a pinch me moment. Like, you know what? My brother's got cancer. Oh. You know. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I didn't mean to do that. But anyway, it's like the rest of the world is upside down. And here we are really living a wonderful, beautiful life in an unbelievable environment yes we i mean it's 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 paradise i i lost my mother to pancreatic last year and so well we don't end this conversation no, on a happy note we are bad note. no no this is a great wonderful life we're living it and, is and have you in our lives mark is really a treat well it's I'm, a I'm, real honor and a, and, a, and a privilege i'm honored to be here and, and humbled to be sitting here with you guys and and appreciate this opportunity so much thank you for being thank you for being in our home thank you thanks mark thank you thanks nick you demand you guys are the man <laughs> I've known Mark for three decades, and every time I'm with him, I experience something new and extraordinary. And after seeing and hearing this episode, I hope you feel the same. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. 
Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks so much. See you again next time.